Welcome to the City on a Hill Church Brighton podcast. We exist to help people love, trust, and follow Jesus in everyday life. We're glad you're here, and thanks for listening. More information on the life and mission of City on a Hill Church can be found at coabrighton.org. That's C-O-A-H-Brighton.org. Well, uh, welcome. If you are a guest, which we've got several kid guests, uh, we want to give our uh, kids ministry volunteers a break every once in a while. And some of you parents are like, this is what they have to do every Sunday. Yes. They take care of your lovely, wonderful kiddos that we care for. And this week we want to give them a rest and a break. So obviously give grace to each other. If you hear a crying baby, don't look back, but get your kid quiet. Look back and just pray for that parent because they're trying to listen to the sermon as well. Um, so guys, we want to thank you church for that grace to give our volunteers. Uh, and we're literally look forward to our baptisms right after service. And so you'll hear Nick dismiss us to come downstairs to continue our service. So you'll go out that way, right down, and we'll end our service downstairs together. Um, Want to also just a special shout out to Bland. Uh, Bland is our pastor of Sidon Hill in Brookline. That church helped us plant this church. And Bland and his ministry has planted seven or eight churches now in the Boston area as one of my mentors. He's actually on our board. So if you've got a complaint against me, go right to Bland and he will make sure that he, uh, you know, brings me out back and does whatever he needs to do uh, to correct me out. Um, but let's hop in. Uh, guys, we've been in a teaching series in the book of James. Um, James is a real blue collar guy, as we've been noticing. He's real just matter of fact. He's going to tell you how it is, nuts and bolts, really practical. Uh, And today, uh, he's giving us some wisdom about something you and I really, really struggle with. Today's all about wisdom as it pertains to challenging relationships and challenging desires. Two things all of us have, right? Just think about in a moment, right? What challenging relationships do you have? You're like, "Don't, don't say these out loud, okay? But who are they? Challenge relationships when it comes to roommates, right? Or your coworkers, your spouse, your kids. There's some challenging relationships you have. But also you have challenging desires. You have desires for love or intimacy, success or safety. And where those desires cling on to is very complex. And so James is writing to people who are fighting a ton of these challenging relationships and a ton of these challenging circumstances of desires in their heart. So he's basically writing to you and I. People that James are writing to, they're funny. They're fighting about money and status and who serves one another and how they speak to one another. There's some racial divides. There's economic divides, educational divides. He's like, guys, you constantly have challenging relationships and challenging desires. And James wants to give us yet again, another week of practical wisdom. How do we navigate challenging relationships and challenging desires? So before we get started, again, put in your head right now, what are some of the most challenging relationships that you have? Put those names in your head. Do not say them out loud. What are those? Just because there are kids in the room. I'm like, mommy, daddy, you know, or whoever that is, right? Who are those most challenging relationships you have? Put them in your head. And then put, what are the most challenging desires you have? What are those desires you have? Those cravings, those passions, things that lead you maybe down a, a challenging, hard, sinful path. What are those things? Put them in your head. And I want to work through those particular people and things as we move through this service. Now think for a moment, what makes relationships so challenging in general? Now, if you're like me, you blame shift. You blame shift those relationships. The reason you believe or I believe that a relationship is challenging is because of what they do and what they say, right? Rarely in a challenging relationship do you think, oh, it's something that I did or I said. And maybe in some cases it is really fully what they did. But oftentimes, guys, 
the reason why a relationship is challenging is because you both have competing desires. One of you wants Y and the other wants Z and they don't line up. Or both of you want Z and there's not enough Z to go around, whatever those things are. If you're a new parent, that might be sleep. And so both of you are wanting the Zs. That's a little pun for you, little Zs. In the evening, you're tired, you're weary, and you're like, you get the kid, you get the kid, you get the kid. And there's a fight breaks out because you both want the same thing. But either way, guys, relationships are challenging because there's competing desires. And both of you are trying to get Y or Z to fulfill you, and the other person is in your way. Listen, if you spend a lot of time with people, you'll see that that's very clear. That's why relationships are challenging. And James sees this as well, and he addresses it in today's passage. And he does it in a really cool way. He sort of does it in a call and response way. He gives a problem, and then he provides a solution. He gives another problem, and he provides a solution. He does this call and response thing to help us see the practicality of how to work through a problem in a gospel Godward-centered way. So here's the first problem that he brings up. Here's the first one. He says, guys, the reason why there's challenges and heartbreak relationship, uh, with relationships is number one, it's the desires of your heart. The desires of your heart is the first problem. I have that on the screen for you. Verses one and two, he starts out and says this. He says, guys, what, what causes quarrels, which just are angry arguments? That's what quarrels means, angry arguments. What causes quarrels and what causes fights? The difference between quarrels and fights is quarrels are some like angry arguments. Fighting is when you continually have angry arguments. Does that make sense? Continually have those. What causes those among you, he says? Is it not this very thing? It's your passions, meaning it's yours and my self-focused desires. That's the reason why there's quarrels and fights. At war within you, that's what's going on. So he gives some examples. He's like, listen, you desire maybe more sleep or maybe more comfort or, or more leisure when you get home and your spouse or your roommate it doesn't have a clean kitchen or uh, they won't cook dinner or they're frustrated at you. And so you murder. And everyone's like, hold on a second. What do you mean murder, bro? Remember, who's James the brother of? Jesus. What did Jesus say that murder was? He really said it's hate in your what? Your heart. So how many of you and I have not gotten what we desired and then we hated it in our heart? How often does that happen in our relationships? Someone maybe stricts some dignity from you in a joke and then some hate begin to bore up in you because you demand them to care for you perfectly. And so you desire and you don't have. So what happens? You murder in your heart. He gives us another example. He says, you covet, meaning you want something that someone else has, but you can't obtain it. So you fight and you quarrel to get it. So for, I'll give you uh, an example of this. Do you guys remember our hypothetical characters from last week? You guys remember those? I give you a hypothetical scenario. There's another hypothetical that I'm giving you today. So if you're a guest, I don't call out people by name in their church for their sin struggles. That'd be like a really epic church service of sadness. So I'm giving you hypotheticals, okay? And this doesn't happen like all the time in our church. It happens at churches everywhere. This is what happens often with our hearts when it comes to these competing desires and quarrels and fights. So here's the hypothetical. This week, it's hypothetical Sarah and hypothetical Tina. And they've been in a church community for a really long time, several years together. Sarah is more connected to others than Tina. Sarah is super easygoing. She's funny. She's a life of the party. And she often just draws people into her with her personality. And Tina begins to notice that Sarah is getting more time and attention and care than her. 
doesn't bother Tina at first, but before long, a root of bitter jealousy invades Tina's heart, like we saw last week. It begins to twist around her major heart arteries, making it impossible to love Sarah or others well. Instead, Tina just wants what Sarah has in its close, caring, meaningful relationships. Having friends is good, as we learned last week, but now it's become ultimate to Tina. After a few months, this bitter jealousy grows in her, and Tina starts to think some pretty unkind things about Sarah, and before you know it, she's subtly saying these unkind things about Sarah to others. Nothing too mean, but just mentioning small, insignificant details that may make other people think less of her. And Tina's now slandering. Well, if you're in a small church, Sarah, of course, Sarah gets word about what Tina's saying. Sarah gets angry. And she's angry because Sarah must have the approval of others to feel valued. And so she does her best to keep up her image and her reputation, the very thing that's now at risk with Tina's words. If my reputation is damaged, she thinks, so is my value and my significance. She can't stand the fact that Tina is talking badly about her behind her back. So over the course of the next few months, Tina begins to demand more time and attention from others to fill the void in her heart. And Sarah works tirelessly to earn back approval points from those Tina has slandered to. Both of them now working to fill the void of their desires that were left for them in their hearts. At this point, bitter jealousy and selfish ambition has grown so much in both of their hearts that they look to every relationship to meet their wants, their needs, and their validation. And soon enough, the seed of bitterness has grown so big in their hearts that the roots now draw health and joy and stability from their soul, leaving them both angry, bitter, and feeling empty than ever before. Have you not seen that in some of your friendships before? Like, you know those high school friends or those college friends that like had a falling out and they never recovered, right? We've seen marriages after marriage have something similar like this happen and they let it grow and the marriage is no longer, it ends. We see this with roommates and we see this in community groups. We see this all the time. It starts out, it's all too common. It starts out with just something in our hearts, some good, natural, ordered desire in our hearts, like friendship or like marriage or comfort, except it starts out as normal. But here's what James says. If our internal desires are not satisfied in an eternal way with God as a satisfier, then our desires will begin to dominate us. And then we will begin to domineer over others to get that desire. So when we fight and quarrel, when we gossip and slander, we dig and we punch and we pull our way to think to get what we satisfy us, we think. And we see this all the time. This happens in church life. It happens in your family. It happens in your heart. And this is the problem, is what James is saying. It's not the other person. It's not the circumstance. It's not how much money you get paid or not get paid. It's not how much sleep or little sleep. It has nothing to do with the outward circumstance most times but it's the inward position of the heart. And James says, we fight because there's something that we want. And if we can get that thing, it will satisfy every core longing we have. So we quarrel and we fight to get it. That's what James says. That's the problem with why we quarrel and fight. And then James tells us there's a solution though. He says, hey guys, you got to tell Tina, you got to tell Sarah, there's two things of what to do to help their hearts. He says, for you to ask God prayerfully about it and apply the gospel personally. That's the solution that he gives. Ask God prayerfully and apply the gospel personally. Look it up for yourself. Verse 2b says this. So he says, hey, remember that desire that got you into trouble, Tina and Sarah? Remember that desire you had and you started to fight? 
He says, you don't have what you desire because you do not, what? Ask. Now that's really interesting. James begins to pivot from this hypothetical of people quarreling and fighting. And he says, the problem is not necessarily the people, it's the position of the heart. And you don't have the core longing that you're looking for because you're looking for it in created things rather than in the creator. That's what James is saying the problem is. You don't have it because you've not asked me to meet that core longing. You didn't seek it in me as your creator. You look for it in creation. That's what James is saying. Guys, if there's a core longing in your heart, it could be marriage. It could be a significant other. It could be an increased pay. It could be more peace in your life. And what oftentimes in order to fill that core longing, what do we do? We go a direct shot to creation. I will date someone. I will change my jobs. I will move cities. I will try to alter my circumstances to fix my heart. When James is saying, no, 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 you, you, you don't change something externally to try to fix internally. You, you got to come to the Lord. You got to ask me in prayer and cover it with the gospel. So what about Tina? What, is, what did Tina and Sarah do in this fight? Remember, Tina's upset because Sarah is getting a little bit more time and care than the other person. Tina's growing bitter because she's like, why can't I get the affection or why can't people spend time with me? What, what, what about Tina? Tina is looking to be loved and validated and she's looking to be needed. So she looks to people rather than to God and what he's provided on the cross and how he's proved his love for her once and for all, how he's validated the deepest need of her heart, which was sin and he paid for it on the cross. God has given Tina everything that she needs. And if she would turn to him, she would find everything her heart longs for in him. And Sarah, remember, she's upset because her reputation's on the, the docket. It's getting marred and tamed with these comments. Well, where does Sarah need to turn and look? Sarah's looking to be valued and accepted and well thought of by others. So she looks at self-image, how she dresses, how she looks. She's got to have a good reputation. She's got to have successful accomplishments. She's got to be moral and mission-minded. That's where she finds her value rather than in Christ's righteousness and how he lived perfectly to be her perfect image before the father. And he died the ultimate death to give her ultimate value. That's where Tina and Sarah need to turn. And only when they turn to Christ, can they turn to one another in unity and love and grace. Does that make sense? Guys, I just gave you a, a real kind of like high level hypothetical, but it happens in all of your heart. The only way to turn two people from quarreling and fighting to one another is if they first turn upwards. The only hope is vertical looking to Lord and see how he's cared for us in the cross that enables us to power to care horizontally for one another. Amen? So think about who's that person that you are striving with, who irritates you constantly. And what is God calling or challenging to you to do in this text? Can you come to him that area you feel angry or bitter, what are you longing for in that area? He says, you don't have that? Come to me. Come to me. It's not a circumstance. I may not change your circumstance, but I'll change your heart. And I'll give you in the cross what you ultimately need. Does that make sense? Because all of us are looking so many places to find what we ultimately need in him. And James is inviting us today to look upward towards heaven, not downward towards earth to find what we need.
need. So guys, again, where is this hitting home for you? Where are you looking for creation to satisfy core longing where only God can? Guys, if you're struggling to identify where this is in your life, I want you to think, where, where are you quarreling with someone? Where are you bitter? Where are you jealous? Where are you demanding of others? Because right behind those actions and emotions reveals a heart that is looking to creation rather than the creator to be satisfied. Guys, this past week, just to be honest with you, my wife and I got in an argument on Monday and all week there's been some awkward tension up in our house. As we've been trying to work through this conflict, we've been tired, we're frustrated, we're irritated at each other. We're doing a lot in the community, but not a lot in our hearts. And I've been bitter and frustrated and we were working through those things. We've got another conversation scheduled tonight to work through it more. But why are we having conflict? Why are you having conflict? It's all what's going on in your heart. There's something that I'm looking to her to fill in me that only God can fill. She's only looking for something in me that God can fill. And when you're tired and you're exhausted and you're serving others, you often think, well, who's gonna serve me? Who's gonna care for me? And you turn it in on somebody and we've turned it in on each other. But where does my heart must look? I hate it, by the way, preaching this text after I'm going through what I'm going through this week. I'm like, he got me. Why can't I preach on something else? You know, like being missional. I'm like, I got that one. I'll tell these people about living on mission. Look at how many times we're out in the community this week. Now he just stabs me with the gospel. No, your heart, Aaron, needs this. You've been quarreling. You think that your wife can satisfy something that only I can. Stop turning in on her and turn to me. I will give you what you need in me. That's why I hate preaching expositionally sometimes verse by verse because the verse will sneak up on you and they'll get you. Praise God for the Bible. And that's why I preach it verse by verse. Amen, amen. I get it. I hear you. Guys, theologians have been talking about this very point for centuries. C.S. Lewis, might like him, you might not. Here's a quote from him. I do. He says this. He says, guys, if we find ourselves with a, a desire that nothing else in this world can satisfy, because you know, we've all been looking for something to satisfy us, then the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. Makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? If you and I have gone from person to person, relationship to relationship, job to job, city to city, possession to possession, and you're like trying to satisfy yourself and nothing can get there, you weren't made for this world and material things. You were made to be connected with your creator. Even further back than C.S. Lewis was Augustine. He said this, God, you have made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. You've heard that quote, you know this. So what needs to happen when we find ourselves bitter and angry or fighting, quarreling, what needs to happen? You ask God in prayer and you apply the gospel personally. Guys, James then warns us right after this verse of like, hey, you don't have that core desire, you come and ask me. He warns us, check your motive when you come to me in prayer. This is real now. This gets real with you in how we pray, okay? James says, check your heart for a second. Don't ask for an idol thinking it will satisfy a longing. That's what James is telling us when he says this. He says, sometimes some of you do come to me. Some of you do pray and you ask and don't receive. Why? Because you ask wrongly. You actually ask for an idol to satisfy you to spend it on your passions. Do you see that there? That's interesting. Some of us, God, you've gone before him and you've asked him for an idol. God, would you help me get this job? This job is my everything. It'll make me look so good. My mom and dad will be so proud of me. I'll get so much money. I'll have this prestige in this position. 
And God says, no, because if I gave you that, it would destroy your heart and soul because your hope is banked on that. Some of us pray, God, would you please give me a spouse? Oh, I want to feel loved and intimate and connected. Some of us are praying, God, would you help me out of this marriage? Would you help give me kids? Whatever it is, we're praying for all sorts of things. And in God's grace, his best yes to you is a no. Because God doesn't want to give you something that will destroy your heart. So God's best yes is often to tell you no. That's what James is saying. You ask and you don't receive because you asked wrongly. Not that you had to have the right magical worded formula, but that your heart wanted that thing and that thing became ultimate. And sometimes God in his grace says no. Now, just a caveat, anytime I bring that up, people think, hey, if I'm single and I ask for prayer about a spouse, does that mean I'm just sinful and I gotta wait to be perfect in order to get a spouse? No. So make sure it's clear. That's not what I'm saying. That's right. Amen, kid. But, uh, double amen. But what I am saying is this. Listen, what I am saying is this. Sometimes, not all the time, but sometimes you do pray for something that's like, God, would you give me this idol? Because if I could have that thing, that circumstance, that place, that thing, ooh, if I could just get that, ooh, that would be everything to me. I'd feel so much peace and just calm. If that person would just not work at this job anymore, if I had a new boss, if I transitioned somewhere else, man, this would help me. And sometimes God says, no, no, no. In this place, in that pain, I want to meet you and do something greater in you. I want to give you peace in the midst of your circumstance, not peace dictated on your circumstances. Does that make sense? It's very easy for us to go somewhere else. God will say no to your prayers at times in order to protect you from harm. That's the first problem. We've got to go quicker through the second one, okay? Problem number two. What's the issue with relationships and our desires? Number two, relational abandonment with God and spiritual adultery. Wow, welcome to church, right? Man, James does not pull punches in verse four. He starts out this problem by saying, you adulterous people. Bro, if you came to church today looking for a happy and a hug and John three sixteen about how God loved you and gave his son, James is like on the other end of the spectrum right now with this part of the passage. You adulterous people. That's really, really intense. But what is he saying here? Is he saying that everyone that James is writing to in the church were having affairs in their marriage? No, he's not saying that. He's actually getting at the key of this letter, which is the heart of people. Basically, this is about how Jesus gave his whole life for you and demands your whole life for him so that he can give you an abundant wholeness in this life and the life to come. And when you sin, hear me out, when you sin, which is going against God's word in this world, God sees that as spiritual adultery because he says that we're united together when we placed our faith in Christ, that we now become united with God. Colossians tells us that we're hidden in Christ and sin is like committing adultery spiritual adultery with God. James even goes further and says this. He says, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of this world makes himself an enemy of God. That's a strong statement, right? Think about that again. Friendship with the world is enmity with God? Does James mean that you can't have non-Christian friends? That you can't watch Netflix you can't root for the Celtics because those are, quote, worldly things. No, guys, that's not what James is saying. But he is saying for you to be 
whole and healthy in your walk with God, you can't unite yourself with the ideas and values and practices that the world has to offer. In other words, he's saying you can root for the Celtics, but your value, worth, pleasure, and hope can't be rooted in the Celtics. You can have non-Christian friends and you can buy stock and you can go on vacation. You can go on these things, but do those things have its values in you? It's fine even for possessions, for you to have possessions, right? But do those possessions have you? That's what James is getting to here. Guys, the, the way the world operates, especially now with the, all the hot topic issues, marriage, gender, sexuality, abortion, these are all right in our face, aren't they? Guys, how do we determine what do we think about? How do we determine how we believe or what we should vote for or practice? Where do we turn to? And oftentimes we may turn to the culture and we think, man, I don't want to I don't want to be awkward with my neighbors or friends, so I'd rather be more friendly in my approach and maybe not stand for truth. And we become more friends with what maybe culture believes on an issue rather than God. That's what James is calling out here. And that's really startling or maybe sobering for us today with everything that's been coming out on the news about marriage, sexuality, gender, abortion, everything that we see right now. And the question is not what does the world think? Not what does politics think? Not what's your own opinion, but what does God's word say about God's world? And that's where we should run to first. And if not, God is telling us, hey, maybe you united yourself with the world and not my word. And so this is an invitation for us, not a political conversation, not who you should vote for, what should happen you know, this fall. That's not the conversation. The conversation is where is your heart united to? Is it united to the purposes and practices of God's word in his world? Or is it something else giving you that hope? So what's the solution for this? If part of our heart's issue is spiritual adultery away from God, what's the hope? James tells us it's relational dependence and it's the opposite. Relational dependence and spiritual faithfulness to God. Verse five says this. He says, or do not suppose that it is to no purpose that the scripture says that God yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. Think about that phrasing for a moment. God yearns, desires, wants, craves. He has a jealousy over the spirit that he's put in you. He's made you in his image with many of his characteristics. You have the ability to love and hate, be merciful and just. God's put that in you and he yearns jealously over you. That ties into this spiritual adultery concept that God yearns for you, loves you, wants you exclusively, just like a spouse. And if there was marital unfaithfulness or there's some sort of going astray, one spouse has the right to be jealous, say, no, I don't, I want you all for myself. And that's what God is saying. We're made in his image. He wants you and all of you through the cross, God can have access to all of your life and all of your heart, all of your affections. And he wants to you to trust in him each day forward. All of your heart, all of your life, all of your affection, all of your love, he wants it. And he is pursuing you jealously in a loving way to draw you in. So here's what happens when you sin. God sees it as spiritual adultery 
But what happens is interesting, this verse tells us, that he jealously comes after you. Notice how it didn't say he justly comes after you, did it? It's that he's jealously after you. So it means that when you sin, it's like an aroma that goes up to God. And if you're in Christ, he comes after you, not to just call you out, but to call you in, to bring you back. It's like the story of the prodigal son, right? Prodigal son abandons the father, runs away. The father posts up and he's ready for the son to come home. When he can see the son, the father hikes up his uh, cloak and he runs out after the son, jealously looking and waiting and wanting him to come home. That is the father, except it goes further than the prodigal son. That father sent his son, not to just wait on us, but run after us. And this is what we see, that when you and I sin, God is not crossing his arms in anger and rage, No, it's in running position because your sin is like an emergency flare that goes up in God's face. And he's like, no, my son or my daughter, they're running away. I've got to come after them. And so God says to fix this in this text, our hearts must find its longings in our creator. He jealously longs for us because he can exclusively satisfy us. Does that make sense? That's what James is inviting us into. He's saying, you are mine and you were made to be fulfilled in me. God wants you for himself personally so that you can be fulfilled abundantly and bring glory to him eternally. Guys, again, C.S. Lewis says, if we can find ourselves with a desire that nothing this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. Another theologian says something even more deeply. He says this, our hearts function as a perpetual idol factory. The desires of our hearts beget an idol. Then this idleness of our hands gives birth to it. And our hearts are deceitfully wicked above all things. Therefore, all we can do is present our hearts to God with outstretched arms, offering ourselves wholly to him. And that's why James says in verse six, but he gives more grace. God gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Guys, this text is telling us that God is tirelessly on your side. He gives grace after grace after grace and love after love after love, forgiveness after forgiveness after forgiveness. It's just a towering cascade of his love on you. So my friends, if a desire has taken you astray and led you on a path of hurt and heartache and shame, this text is telling you there's grace. There's the grace to be forgiven and the grace to be freed. And turn from that area because he gives grace and grace and grace if you come humbly before him with your sin. The cross pays for and the cross gives us the power to change. So here's how James ends. He gets real practical as we've seen every week and he gives you some action steps to end. He says, verse seven, what do you do? In challenging relationships and challenging desires, first thing you do, you submit yourself to God. That word submit just means you surrender the self fully. Imagine a battle for a moment. Got this uh, illustration from Pastor Stephen at Forest Hills. It says, imagine an army for a moment. One side beats up on the other and the other says, I surrender. I lay down my rights, my agenda, my terms. In fact, I'll become a part of your people. That's what surrender is. But the battle in this illustration, the battle's not God against you, the battle's against your sin that he's already paid for. So now God's inviting you to, to come in, to take 
his agenda, to take his name, to become a part of his people, to lay yourself down and surrender. Submitting to God is just simply this. You're saying, I don't want to be in control. I'm not good at it. (laughs) That's all it is. Uh, I shared this analogy with some of my friends recently. Um, Our family took vacation to California and we went on one of those rides that was driving the car yourself. You ever seen that where they have a little track for kids? They drive the car and it was my turn to ride with Kiana and I put her in the driver's seat and I said, Kiana, it's your turn to drive. She's like, daddy, I don't, I don't want to drive. You remember this, Kiana? Remember this? Yeah, we picked the white car and she's like, daddy, I don't want to drive. I don't want to drive. I'm not good at this. You take control. That's all, that's all submission is. You're saying, God, I'm not good at being the king of my life. You take the car. I'm not good at it. Now there's some parenting moments and I, I taught her how to teach, drive the car. She, got, she was fine with it, but it was so simple to her. I'm not good at this. You do it. Imagine if all of us had that type of faith. I just surrender myself to you, Lord. I'm not the king or queen of my life. I don't know how to run this thing. And you give over your ways, your heart, your passions, your dreams, everything to him. And he leads it. Second thing he tells you is simply not only just submit yourself, but resist the devil and he'll flee from you. Listen, there's two ways that the enemy will trick you. He will get you with his lies or his lures. His lies or his lures. Lies telling you that you're trash or lures tricking you with the hook of false treasures. That's how he'll trick you. So James is telling us very easily, resist the devil. He'll flee from you. That's how easy it is. Resist him. Tell him no. Go to the Lord in prayer. Take those desires and tuck those desires in the cross and find what you're actually wanting underneath the pornography, underneath the addiction, underneath the drinking, underneath the smoking weed to be numb, underneath the success, underneath the whatever. Underneath that is the longing that you want. And James is saying, you take that and you submit it to the Lord. And then with that temptation, with the lies of the lures, you say, that's not gonna trick me anymore. I know where my full life is found and it's not there any longer. Submit, resist, and I love this promise in verse eight. It says this, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Don't you love that plan and promise? James says, listen, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. How does it, isn't that so amazing? The moment you draw near or call near to the Lord, he will draw near to you. And why does he do that? Simply because he's already done it through the cross. God has drawn near to us by taking on his flesh, dying in our place, raising again. Our faith is in him. And now he is fully accessible to you at every moment you call. Closer than any enemy, temptation, lie, or snare. He's closer. So James tells us, hey, you can resist. You draw near to God, God's gonna draw near to you. It's the promise. Guys, we don't have a lot of time to kind of walk through all the ways you can draw near to God, but here's the easiest, simple four you can do every day. Spend time in the scriptures, pray your heart, spend time in silence and solitude and worship. Either sing songs personally or privately or come and gather with the saints often on a Sunday morning, Sunday afternoon, whatever time we're gonna end up meeting, guys, in the future, okay? You come, draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. When you read the Bible, you're saying, I need wisdom, I need you. When you pray, you said, I need your presence, I need your power. When you go to silence and solitude, you're saying, God, my life is so busy and so chaotic. I want a moment in time, a date with you. When you go to worship, you say, God, you are worthy to be in control of my life and heart, not me. And when you draw near to him in those ways, you sense him drawing near to you and you sense hope and peace again. Then verse four and verse five is kind of harder ways that James gives us some action steps. 
He says, cleanse your heart, you sinners. It's a really hard way to say something to someone. Cleanse your heart, you sinners, and purify. Sorry, cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. He's simply saying there's two things you've got to focus on as you walk with God to help you with your challenging relationships and challenging desires. You've got to cleanse your hands and cleanse your hearts, is what he's saying. He's saying, watch your heart and watch your actions. Anytime you're speaking harshly, you're acting out in anger, he's saying to not only just wash those actions, but go back to the source of it, your heart, and press into why am I living or acting or feeling this way? So James is saying, hey, how do you live out the gospel? You let the cross cleanse your hands of every sin. You let it forgive you and free you to walk new. And to purify your heart, you can't do it yourself. You've got to ask God to do a work in your heart. And the beauty of this is that God never leaves the humble low for long enough. What happens is when you submit and you resist and you draw near and you commit to change, you watch God exalt you is what this text says. Verse 10 says, humble yourself before the Lord and he'll do what? He will exalt you. Which means simply that God elevates your peace and your joy and your comfort and your hope in him. That's what it means. When you take your challenging relationships and your challenging desires and you bring it to him in humility, you take these steps that James is saying, God elevates you, elevates your joy, elevates your heart, draws you to him. And then one day, finally in heaven, God removes every hardship, every challenging relationship, every challenging thing in your heart. He exalts you above it all in the place called heaven in eternity. So church, let me ask you as we close, are you willing to take these steps seriously to deal with your challenging relationships and challenging desires? Will you submit to God's ways? Will you resist the world's ways? Will you draw near to God? And when you cleanse your heart and your hands with everything that you need in the gospel, some of you in this room or online, you know that friendship in the world is, is killing you even as we sit here. Anger in your heart, the addiction in your life, the apathy, that you, apathy you have towards God or your family, achievement, love, or affection, some, some partnership with the world is causing hurt for you. And today in this text, God is not holding out on you. He's reminding you that his grace is with you. He's jealous for you. He's inviting you to come near. He says, draw near to me and I'll draw near to you. Do you hear him plead for your heart? In your challenging circumstances, relationships and desires, he's inviting you over and over and over again to come. C.S. Lewis ends us with this last quote for today. He says, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are often half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. It's like an, an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea. We are far too easily pleased. And in this text, we are seeing how our deepest desires and longings can be met, where quarrels and fights start from, where and why we run to other things rather than the creator. And James is inviting us to come back to the cross where there's grace, a God who pursues you, can forgive you and free you. Church, would you not only come to Christ daily in your hearts, but live out the gospel and the actions of your life with what James practically gave us. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together.